All right, let's turn to Matthew 12. Uh, we're starting, we start, just introduced this last time, really got started good. We'll plow ahead this week. Uh, starting in verse 1, reading through 14. It says, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions, how he entered the house of God, and he ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And departing from there, he went into their synagogue. And behold, a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable, then, is a man than a sheep? So then, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and it was restored to normal like the other. But going out, the Pharisees took counsel together against him as to how they might destroy him. This chapter is, as I said last time, in many ways, a milestone chapter in the Gospel of Matthew. It's a turning point. And in these first 21 verses, we see mounting, growing unbelief of Israel crystallizing into conscious rejection of Jesus. And then in verses 22 to 50, we will see the blasphemy that follows their rejection. And as we've moved through this gospel, I think it's been apparent to all of us that this is a growing thing. The more directly Jesus confronted the Jewish leaders with their internal sinfulness uh, and their external emptiness, the more they hardened in their antagonism against him. Criticism and indifference grew into sharp rebuke and then into furious rage. Now, this chapter begins by recording how it crystallized around the issue of the observance of the Sabbath. Uh, notice the beginning of verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields when? On the Sabbath. Uh, so this is a Sabbath day issue. To the Pharisees, the Sabbath was the absolute epitome of their legalistic system. Everything in their system ultimately focused on that one day. And when he violated their traditions on the Sabbath, he was striking a blow at the heart of their system. The word Sabbath is a very simple word. As I told you last time, in Greek it's sabbaton. In uh, Hebrew it's shabbat. Uh, it means a cessation from labor, a period of rest, a stopping of something. When God created the world, it says he rested on the seventh day, and he ordained that that day would be a day of ceasing labor for Israel. And it became a special covenantal sign between God and Israel. Now, there are many people who misunderstand that the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments, the fourth one, the Sabbath commandment, is the only one of the Ten Commandments that is a non-moral issue. It is a, the only one that's a non-moral commandment. It is a ceremonial commandment. 
So one of the Ten Commandments that was uniquely between God and Israel is a ceremonial rule. All the other nine are moral absolutes. And the reason we know that with certainty is because when you come to the New Testament, every other commandment is repeated in the New Testament except the one regarding the Sabbath. It's not repeated in the New Testament because it was a unique covenantal sign, much like circumcision was between God and Israel. As believers who are under the New Covenant, we go Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Therefore, no one is to judge you in respect to a Sabbath day. <clears throat> and Galatians 4, 9 to 11, Paul chastises the Galatians for turning back to the old habits of practicing the observance of special days and months and seasons and years because they were just simply enslaving them back to the ceremonial law from which Christ had freed them, and that would have included the keeping of the Sabbath in accordance with the Jewish ceremonial law. But at the time of Jesus and his disciples, the Sabbath was, in fact, the ceremonial law of God. It was not a binding law for the church. It is not, but it is a binding law. was a binding law for Israel. And so <clears throat> Jesus would honor the Sabbath, as would his disciples, but only so far as God had intended it to be observed. He would fulfill it as he intended it to be fulfilled. But for several hundred years, the various schools of rabbis had added regulation after regulation to the Mosaic Law, going far beyond the teaching of Scripture. And many of those regulations had to do with the observance of the Sabbath. And they were utterly ridiculous. And those, Jesus and the disciples, would not honor. Uh, the Sabbath had become the focus of all their religion, the Pharisees' religious activity, and they had added so much stuff to the observance of the Sabbath that instead of it being a day of ceasing, instead of being a day of rest, it was a day of incredible burden. One commentator states that because of the thousands of man-made restrictions regarding it, the Sabbath was more tiresome than the six days devoted to one's occupation. It was harder to rest than to earn a living. Uh, Jewish traditions had even caused the Sabbath to become dangerous. Uh, the apocryphal book of 1 Maccabees tells of an incident during the time of Judas Maccabeus uh, when a group of Jews refused to defend themselves on the Sabbath against the Greek army led by Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, as the soldiers of Antiochus attacked, the writer of the book states, quote, they did not answer them or hurl a stone at them or block up their hiding places, for they said, let us all die in our innocence. Heaven and earth testify for you, us that you are killing us unjustly. So they attacked them on the Sabbath, and they died with their wives and children and livestock to the number of a thousand persons, end quote. So in his book, uh, Antiquities, the Jewish historian Josephus reports that it was also because the Jews would not defend themselves on the Sabbath, that the Roman general Pompey was able to capture Jerusalem. As was the custom in ancient Roman warfare, uh, Pompey began building a high mound, a sort of ramp or bank of rock and dirt, uh, against the city walls, which his troops would use to climb over the walls and enter the city. And for those of you who have been to Masada, uh, you will recall that the Romans used a huge dirt 
and rock ramp there to enter and conquer the Jews. Well, Pompey did this exact same thing in Jerusalem. Uh, aware that the Jews who were defending the city would not fight back on the Sabbath, the general had all the construction work done on each Sabbath until the ramp was high enough for his soldiers to enter the city. Uh, Josephus writes this, quote, had it not been for that practice from the days of our forefathers to rest on the seventh day, this bank would never have been perfected by reason of the opposition the Jews would have made. For though our law gave us leave to defend ourselves against those what began to fight with us and assault us, this was a concession, yet it didn't, does not permit us to meddle with our enemies while they're doing anything else, end quote. In other words, as long as the Romans weren't actually assaulting them, the Jews would not interfere with them so long as they were only constructing the ramp. Now, those sound like extreme responses, and they are. But that's how most faithful Jews viewed the observation of the Sabbath. In their minds, they had equated the rabbinic traditions with God's word, and so they believed that to violate them in any way would be to violate God's commands. Now, let me show you what some of the ridiculous traditions were that the rabbis had added to the observance of the fourth commandment. And I couldn't even begin to describe all of them for you. Uh, we probably don't have enough time left in our lives to do that. And if you don't think that's true, just listen to this. In one section of the Talmud, which is the collection of the rabbinic teachings, there are 24 chapters listing all of the Sabbath laws. 24 chapters. One rabbi spent two and a half years trying to, trying to understand one of those chapters. There's 24 of them. He was trying to understand one of them. If you just extrapolate that out at two and a half years per chapter, it would take 60 years to figure out all the things you're supposed to do on the Sabbath. For example, you couldn't travel more than 3,000 feet from your house unless on Friday before the Sabbath you placed some food within 3,000 feet of your house then that food was considered an extension of your house and you could walk there to get it. And since that was an extension of your house, you could then walk another 3,000 feet. Let's suppose you're at home and the place you wanted to go was more than 3,000 feet from your house, but it was within 3,000 feet of your neighbor who lived across the street or down the street. All you had to do was tie a rope from your house to your neighbor's house and his house and the street in between were considered an extension of your house. And you could then travel the full 3,000 feet to where you wanted to go. So that's only two ways that you could get around the other, the rule about 3,000 feet. Uh, certain objects could be lifted up or put down only from and to certain places. You could lift up something in a public place and put it down in a private place or lift it up in a private place and put it down in a public place, or you could lift it up in a wide place and put it in a legally free place, or lift it up in a legally free place and put it down in a wide place. And for years, the rabbis tried to figure out what a wide place was and what a legally free place was. You could never carry a burden that weighed more than a dried fig, but if an object weighed half that amount, you could carry it twice. <laughs> Eating restrictions were some of the most detailed and extensive. Uh, there was a long list of things you couldn't eat on the Sabbath. You could eat nothing larger than an olive, 
And if you put half an olive in your mouth and found out it was rotten and spit it out, that half was considered to be eaten so far as the allowance was concerned. Okay? If you threw an object in the air and caught it with your other hand, it was a violation of the Sabbath. But if you caught it with the same hand, that was okay. Uh, if the sun is setting on Friday, and it was just about to become the Sabbath when the sun goes down, and you reached out for your food, and it suddenly became the Sabbath, you had to drop your food before you drew your hand back, or you'd be carrying a burden on the Sabbath. A tailor couldn't carry a needle on the Sabbath, lest he be tempted to sew something that ripped. A scribe could not carry his pen because he might write. Uh, a pupil couldn't carry his books because he might read. Uh, and you couldn't examine anyone's clothing because you might find an insect there and kill it. Uh, wool could not be dyed. Nothing could be sold. Nothing could be bought. Nothing could be washed. A letter could not be sent even if you put it in the hand of a heathen for delivery. Uh, no lamp could be lit. And that's why today even conservative and orthodox Jews have a timer switch on their lights so that they turn automatically on at sundown and off at bedtime on the Sabbath. Uh, no fire could be lit. Cold water could be poured on warm, but warm water could not be poured on cold. Uh, an egg could not be boiled, even by laying it in the sun and the sand, which they did commonly. Uh, you couldn't take a bath for fear it would spill on the floor and wash the floor, or, or as the water dripped off of you onto the floor. That would be washing the floor. Chairs couldn't be moved because they tended to drag ruts across the ground. That was a violation of the prohibition against plowing on the Sabbath. Um, a woman could not look in the gla a glass because she might see a gray hair and pluck it out. Uh, you couldn't wear jewelry because uh, the jewelry weighed more than a dried fig. Um, when it came to grain and food, the regulations go on and on. You could only eat an egg that was laid, had been laid on the Sabbath if you killed the chicken for Sabbath breaking. Uh, you couldn't carry any more grain in your hand than that which would fit into a lamb's mouth. You could not leave a radish in salt because it would become pickled. Uh, and these restrictions go on endlessly about various foods, including wine, honey, and milk. They even regulated spitting. You could only spit into a rag or on a rock on the Sabbath. You couldn't spit on the ground because that made mud. Mud was mortar, and that was work. Okay? They had very intricate laws about how to get the dirt off your clothes without violating the Sabbath. You could only carry enough ink to write two letters of the alphabet, only enough wax to fill a tiny hole. You could put a wad of oil fabric in your ear if you had an earache, but you couldn't wear false teeth because they exceeded the weight limit for burdens. Uh, among the many, many other things that were forbidden were sowing, plowing, reaping, binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, sifting, grinding, kneading, baking, weaving two threads, untangling two threads, making a knot, untying a knot, and sewing two stitches. And the list goes on and on. So you don't want to know what the Sabbath was? It was a pain in the neck. <laughs> I mean, it was impossible. <laughs> it was impossible to rest because you were so busy trying to figure out what you were allowed to do or forbidden to do 
uh, on that day. No wonder they were laboring and heavy laden. No wonder they were sick to death of the system that had been imposed on them by the legalist. The Sabbath was the focus of everything. And the whole nation was under this incredible burden. So now do you understand what Jesus meant when he said to them, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Yeah, that's what the Sabbath was supposed to be. But as far as rest was concerned, it was a joke. And so Jesus came along and paid absolutely no attention to all that garbage and it infuriated the religious leaders. This became the final act that crystallized their rejection. So with that understanding, let's take a look at this incident in verse 1. It begins by saying, at that time. Now, as Jack Jenkins pointed out in a recent sermon, there are two Greek words that are translated as time. If I had my board mounted up here, I'd write, have written them for you. The first one is chronos, that refers to a specific chronological time. Okay? The other is kairos, which refers to a season or a period of time. That's the word used here. So during that period of time that he was conducting his Galilean ministry, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. We don't know which specific Sabbath this was. It's just that it took place on one of the Sabbaths during the time that Jesus was conducting his Galilean ministry. So what's the first problem you see here? It's that according to the rabbinical law, Jesus shouldn't be traveling someplace on the Sabbath. <laughs> according to them, he couldn't go more than 3,000 feet from his home. But he and his disciples are walking along, walking through the grain fields. God's law didn't say they couldn't do that, but the rabbinical law did. And so they're supposedly in violation of the Sabbath because they're traveling somewhere. And obviously the grain was close to being ripe for harvesting because it says his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. Now, being that they were in Galilee, in the Jordan Valley area, this would have mean that this was late March or early April, nearing Passover season, because that's when the grain usually ripens there. Uh, if you go east from there, the further east you go, the later the grain ripens. So that in the eastern parts of the area it doesn't ripen until August. But the harvest was near because the grain had ripened to the point that it could be eaten. Now they didn't have roads like we think of them. Uh, there were only paths through fields. And the grain was planted in these long, great long rows and people would walk between the rows as they travel on their journey. And so Jesus and his 12 disciples are walking between the rows in the grain fields, heading towards their destination. Now, God had made a wonderful provision for travelers in Israel back in Deuteronomy 23, verses 24 and 25. 23, 24, 25, okay? It says, when you enter your neighbor's vineyard, then you may eat grapes until you're fully satisfied, but you shall not put any in your basket. When you enter your neighbor's standing grain, then you, then you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. In other words, there weren't any restaurants or truck stops along the way. And, and so when you're traveling along and you became hungry, you would just pick some grapes or pluck some grain and eat it. And that was what they commonly did. 
If you've ever lived on a farm or spent any time on a farm, you've done the same thing. So when people in biblical times were traveling through the grain fields, they would pluck the head of the ripe wheat or barley, roll it in their hands to separate the kernel from the outer shell or chaff, and then eat the wheat or barley kernels. In fact, in the parallel passage in Luke 6, we're told in verse 1 that's exactly what the disciples were doing. It says, now it happened on the Sabbath. He was passing through some grain fields, and his disciples were picking and eating the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. Uh, that was God's provision of food for travelers back from Deuteronomy 23. And so the disciples had the right to do this under the Mosaic law. They were not in violation of the word of God at all. They were poor. They had left their livelihood to follow Christ. They lived by faith. They didn't carry much around with them. They had to depend upon the laws of the land, which permitted this activity and the kindness and generosity of people who fed them and cared for them. And Jesus didn't restrain them because they were in line with the Old Testament scripture. Now, back in Exodus 34:21, the Mosaic law forbade reaping on the Sabbath, even during plowing time and harvest season. But obviously, this is not reaping. Reaping is moving through your field with sickles and cutting the grain, binding it up, loading it onto wagons to take to the threshing floor. But the scribes and the Pharisees had taken this concept of not reaping on the Sabbath and they had redefined it down to that fine point. According to the rabbis, if you rubbed grain between your hands, that was threshing. And if you threw away the chaff so you could eat the grain, you were winnowing. You couldn't even pull a handful of grain off of a stalk. So this became the incident that triggered their fury against Jesus because it occurred on the Sabbath. They had determined that this was reaping, and they got that from their ancient rabbis. The great Jewish scholar Alfred Edersheim says that the Talmud states, quote, if a person rolls wheat to remove the husk, it is sifting. If he rubs the heads of wheat, it is threshing. If he cleans off the side adherence, it is sifting. If he bruises the ears, it is grinding. And if he throws it up in his hand, it is winnowing, end quote. That wasn't the spirit which God had intended in banning reaping on the Sabbath. But that's what the rabbis had determined. So that was the incident that caused them to become angry at Jesus. So let's look at the indictment. The indictment. Verse 2. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. The first thought that came to my mind when I read this was, what are these guys doing out in the grain fields themselves that afforded them the opportunity to see Jesus' disciples doing this? You know, one Bible teacher proposes that perhaps they, as the self-appointed guardians of the law, had appointed, had granted themselves an exception so that they could keep an eye on Jesus in order to find something about which to accuse him. It's sort of like the police officer state trooper who has the authority to speed in order to catch up with the guy who he observes speeding. Uh, only the police officer does it with the authority of the law. These guys didn't have the law backing them up. They only had their rabbinical teachings, which they considered to be an even higher level of authority because it was their interpretation of the law. So hiding out 
behind the trees at the edge of the grain field are these Pharisees, just looking for something with which to accuse him. And they saw it. So it says, they said to him, look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now this is hair-splitting legalism that serves no purpose. They had buried God's law so deeply under a pile of legislative tradition that it was unbearable. That's why Peter says in Acts 15.10, Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the yoke of the disciples placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 23, 4, that the scribes and Pharisees tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders. Listen, some people think that if they come to Jesus, they're going to have to give up a lot and do a lot of things that are hard to do. They ought to try Pharisaic Judaism. It, that's a heavy yoke. The yoke of Christ, even with the standards that he has, even with all that lordship implies, is nothing like this. So they indicted Jesus and his disciples for disobeying their distorted, man-made traditions that perverted God's intention in giving of the Sabbath as a day of rest, not a painful day of burdensome, nitpicky regulations. So we move from the incident to the indictment, and in verse 3, we come to the instruction. Listen to the Lord's answer. This is so good. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God, and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priest alone? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priest in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus' words are filled with biting sarcasm as he asks them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry? Verse 5, Have you not read in the law? That's sarcasm, isn't it? And then in verse 7, if you had known what this means. He, he, you see, the account of David to which the Jews, Jesus referred here, was directly from Scripture. And the Pharisees considered themselves the supreme experts and custodians of what the law and the Scripture said. So he says, haven't you read this in the Scripture? Haven't you read the law? Don't you know what this means? And of course the implication is they don't have any idea at all. And so Jesus instructs them, and he uses three biblical texts or incidents or principles to show the true meaning of the Sabbath. You see, the Sabbath was to bring rest, not hardship. The Sabbath was to reflect what the other nine commandments reflected, love towards God and love towards your fellow man. That's what the Ten Commandments are all about. The first of the commandments talk about our love to God through loyalty, faithfulness, reverence, and holiness. And the second group of the Ten Commandments talk about love toward our fellow man through respect and purity and unselfishness and truthfulness and contentment. And that's why he said that the whole law was summed up with, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. It's love to God and it's love to man. That's what Paul says in Romans 13, 8 to 10. He says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who has loved his neighbor has fulfilled the law. 
for this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not work evil against a the neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. But the Pharisees didn't have a clue about love. They just they would just suppress people, intimidate people, pile burdens on them. They were loveless, legalistic functionaries. But the law of God was to permit God and man to have an ongoing love relationship and permit man and man to have an ongoing love relationship. Therefore, the law could never stand in the way of meeting people's needs. That's a very basic point. So first of all, Jesus says, the Sabbath does not restrict deeds of necessity. Sabbath doesn't restrict deeds of necessity. Look at this illustration there in verses 3 and 4. He said to them, Have you not read what David said when he became hungry, he and his companions, how he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priest alone? And you know, when he picks out David, he's got him. Because David was their hero. He was the supreme hero of Judaism. He was the number one in all the popularity polls in Israel. He was their greatest king, their greatest poet, their greatest warrior. More loved, honored, and revered than the patriarchs and the prophets. David was it. And Jesus asked, haven't you read what David did? And he reminds them of a familiar story about David and his companions as they fled for their lives outside of Gibeah uh, to escape the jealous and vengeful Saul. The story is found in 1 Samuel 21. Saul was after him. David came to the land of Nob, just north of Jerusalem, where the tabernacle was. He didn't have any food. He and his men were really hungry. So he went into the place to talk to Ahimelech, who was ministering in the place of Abiathar, the high priest, and he told him he was hungry. He even told him a lie about what mission he was on, but nonetheless he told him he was hungry. You know what they gave to him and his men to eat? The consecrated bread off of the table in the tabernacle. Now what is this consecrated bread? Well, every week they baked 12 loaves of bread and each loaf weighed, was made with six and a half pounds of flour. That's a big loaf of bread, right? And there were 12 of them. And they were put in two rows or two piles of six each. And they represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And they were placed on the special table in the tabernacle. And every Sabbath, the loaves would be taken away and new loaves put down. And when the old loaves were taken away, according to Leviticus 24, 5 to 9, they were to be eaten by the priests and they were to be eaten by no one else. The Hebrew word here literally means the bread of the presence. And it was the representation of God's perpetual relationship to his people, and it was to be eaten only by the priest. It was sacred, it was consecrated, it was never to touch the lips of a common person, even someone like David, because he wasn't a priest. But David ate the consecrated bread. I mean, the idea isn't original with me, but the only parallel I can think of would be if you went into a Roman Catholic church and drank all the holy water there because you were thirsty. Uh, they might get upset at you for doing that, right? 
But David and his men ate the consecrated bread. Verse 4 says, He entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priest alone. So the question is, how come God let him do that? How come God didn't discipline Ahimelech and David? Because God never intended any law that was intended to overrule human need. Ceremony takes a back seat to the meeting of need. God not only allows necessity to overrule ritual, but the ritual in both David's time and Jesus' time had lost its meaning anyway because the people were so unholy. Listen, God will even violate one of his own ceremonial laws. Remember, we're not talking about moral laws at this point. God will even violate a ceremonial law if he has to in order to meet a need because God is all about loving men and meeting their needs. But the Pharisees didn't understand that. They didn't understand what Mark, in his parallel passage, Mark 2, 27, adds that Jesus also said to them, he said, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath was given for the benefit of man so he could rest and have his needs met, not so that man could be tied up with all kinds of nitpicky rules for keeping the Sabbath holy. David violated the ceremonial law to fulfill the heart of God and the heart of God is to meet needs. The Sabbath was not intended to restrict necessary deeds of mercy. Let's look at the second illustration, verse 5. And that is that the Sabbath does not restrict service to God. He says, Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. Jesus didn't need to explain this to the Pharisees. They knew what the law said. They just didn't like, they, they just didn't want it to apply to what Jesus did. Um, the priests broke the Old Testament law every Sabbath. How? Because all the various functions that the priests had to do on the Sabbath violated the requirements of rest on that day. They had to work in order to fulfill all the requirements of their service to God. They lit fires on the altar. They killed animals for sacrifices. They had to lift up those animal carcasses and place them on the altar. And a dead animal certainly weighed more than a dried fig. In fact, do you know that the sacrifices on the Sabbath were double sacrifices, requiring twice the work of their normal daily sacrifices? You can see that in Numbers 28 and Leviticus 24. I remember as a little kid growing up here in the South, most stores were closed on Sundays, and restaurants didn't open until 12.30 or 1 o'clock after people were out of church. Uh, I remember that Publix, which was founded by a Christian man, George Jenkins, was always closed on Sunday. It wasn't until 1983 that Publix stores opened on Sundays. Why were things that way back then? Because Sunday was set aside for church and then rest in the afternoon. It was the Lord's Day. Now, many Christians thought of Sunday as if it was some sort of a Christian Sabbath. Uh, however, every Sunday, my mom fixed Sunday dinner, which for us was a big meal of roast beef, rice and gravy, a vegetable or two, not from a steamer bag in those days, uh, probably something we had picked fresh and frozen in our freezer. 
uh, and usually some homemade cornbread or biscuits. She worked hard that day. And at church, my mom was one of those who was teaching the young girls in Sunday school. And there were other people working in the children's ministry and teaching Sunday school. And the pastor was preaching two services that day. And there was no one who ever said, well, you shouldn't be doing all that work on the Lord's Day. Why? Because everyone understood that on Sunday, the pastor and the others had to work at preaching and teaching. And moms had to prepare meals because we needed to eat while we all supposedly rested on Sunday afternoon. Now, Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath, despite what many thought in those days. If you think it is, I suggest you get Steve Kreloff's message on the fourth commandment and listen to it. But the point here is the same, and that's really what Jesus is saying here. There was, was service to God that actually violated the whole ceremonial law. The point is that God doesn't make rules that force themselves to be applied above that which is a higher priority which is serving God. So, I mean, I work on Sunday. I study all week so I can teach on Sunday, and no one has ever yet accused me of violating the Lord's day by serving him in that way. Look at verse 6. Here's the statement that must have knocked him over. But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. He's just said, look, tabernacle rules are set aside. Temple rules are set aside. And I'm telling you right here, right now, that someone greater than the temple is here. Well, unless you're a Jew alive at that time, you'll never understand what that meant to them. The temple was the greatest symbol and emblem of Judaism. It was the place in which there was the holy of holies which God had, in which God had dwelt. And Jesus was saying, I'm greater than the temple. Listen again, here's what he's saying. If David could eat the consecrated bread that was in the tabernacle because ceremony does not overrule meeting needs, and if the priest can violate the Sabbath laws in the temple in order to do service to God, then I'm allowed to do it as well because I'm greater than both of those things. Now that statement had to have made the Pharisees boiling angry. They knew the temple was greater than the tabernacle. But to hear someone say that he was greater than the temple was absolutely shocking. They would have been horrified because even if they didn't fully understand, comprehend the meaning of his statement, in their minds there was nothing on earth greater than the temple. In their minds, the only thing greater than the temple was God himself. And now here is this guy standing there telling them, Something greater than the temple is here. Jesus was making a claim to be God. This was a claim to deity. What he's really pointing out was that God had dwelt in the tabernacle. God had dwelt in the temple, but greater than the tabernacle, greater than the temple, God was dwelling among them in the body of the living Lord Jesus Christ right in their midst. So if there were exceptions for the tabernacle and exceptions for the temple, there are most certainly exceptions for the true incarnation of God, Jesus the Messiah. He's more sacred than any man-made house that God has ever dwelt in. This is another one of those monumental claims to deity that Jesus makes. There's a third illustration. It's found in verses 7 and 8. Let me just see where we're at here. 
Well, okay, we'll keep going. We don't have as far to go to get to the church today. Okay, let me get back, find where I was. And that is, verses 7 and 8, Sabbath does not restrict acts of mercy. It doesn't restrict acts of mercy. Look at there. He says, but if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He's saying, you guys are condemning these disciples, and they're innocent. They're guiltless. You wouldn't have done that if you truly knew what God had wanted. If you knew what he wanted, that he wanted mercy, not rituals like sacrifices. If you would have properly understood what the prophet Isaiah wrote, you wouldn't have done that. You would have known what he meant. You see, that phrase, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, is found in Hosea 6.6. 6. And the word sacrifice, as used there, embodies the whole ceremonial system, the entire mosaic system of ritual and ceremony. That ceremonial Sabbath system was only a shadow. It was never more than symbolic, a means pointing to God's gracious future provision of a perfect sacrifice. But even under the Old Covenant, Sabbath observance was not a substitute for heart righteousness and compassion that should characterize all of God's faithful children. What God really wants is a merciful heart. God is merciful and he commands his people to be merciful. Aren't you glad that God has oftentimes set aside the immediate consequences of some of his requirements of obedience to his law? I mean, every time you sin, you deserve to be instantly put to death. But God doesn't do that. That's evidence of his mercy. Yes, he disciplines his children, but he's merciful and gracious even in that. God is looking for obedient hearts. The Pharisees were a million miles from that. He wanted mercy. They didn't have a clue. I mean, wouldn't you think that the Sabbath would be the day of all days in which you would want to meet the needs of others? Wouldn't you think that the Sabbath of all days would be the day to serve the Lord by showing mercy to others? But here the disciples are, walking along, serving the Lord, preaching the kingdom, reaching people. They had to eat on the way. They're serving the Lord. Their needs had to be met. God wanted to be merciful to them. Don't you think that Sabbath is the perfect time for that? Interestingly, the Pharisees had indicted Jesus for breaking the Sabbath, but at the same time he had done but by the time he was done with his response to them, external legalists who didn't even, uh, he had indicted them as external legalists who didn't even know the heart of God. They were the violators of the Sabbath because the Sabbath was for meeting needs, serving God, and showing mercy. And then he says this, and if they hadn't already popped a blood vessel in their brains from high blood pressure, this would do it. <laughs> Verse 8. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. What a statement. He is saying, I have authority over the Sabbath, and I will interpret its meaning. What a claim. There's only two choices. He's either a blasphemer or he's God. Those are the only two choices. That must have goaded them to utter madness. He says, you're not in charge of the Sabbath. I'm in charge of the Sabbath. He's directly claiming to be the Messiah and asserting his authority as God over the Sabbath. You see, the term Son of Man is used in 
Daniel 7.13 to refer to the coming Messiah, and both they and Jesus understood that. Daniel 7.13.14 says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and came near before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, and all the peoples, nations, and men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not be taken away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That is a clear prophecy of the coming Messiah. And every Jew understood Daniel's prophecy that way. So when Jesus used that term to them, they knew he didn't mean, I'm a man just like the rest of you. No, they knew he was claiming to be the Messiah. So the Pharisees had to be livid at this point. He had broken their Sabbath rules, embarrassed them by pointing out their inconsistency, both in their interpretation of the Old Testament and the practices of their priests, and now he has asserted his authority over the Sabbath. He's even claimed to be greater than their temple, and the only person greater than the temple was God. Can you see why these two issues, one, Jesus' refusal to participate in their self-righteous rule-keeping, and two, his claim to be God, became the focal points of their desire to destroy him? That's the two reasons. You know why we don't keep the Sabbath anymore? Because the Lord fulfilled it. In Hebrews 4, it says, because of Christ, we've entered into rest. You see, the Sabbath was a figure, a picture, a shadow of that day when God's people would rest. But the Pharisees ruined that illustration. They turned the Sabbath into such a horrible experience that if that was the way into God's kingdom, the way God's kingdom would be, who in the world would want it? So Jesus comes along and says, come over here to my side if you're weary and heavy laden. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. You'll find rest. It's a time of mercy and meeting needs and serving God. And Jesus came and fulfilled that Sabbath. And that's why there's no need for any shadow anymore. That's why there's no need for an illustration anymore because we've entered into the reality. That's why the New Testament says nothing about keeping the Sabbath. Well, let me look. I've got to stop, unfortunately. I'd love to continue and get this point done, but I don't have time. Any comments or questions? I hope you learned something today. That's the key. I hope you learned something. What's that? <laughs> yes. Yes. I just wonder how many people stayed in bed that day. Get up. Yeah. <laughs> so. All right. Let's close with prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for that we no longer are keeping these ridiculous Sabbath rule observations that we've taken upon ourselves a yoke that is easy and a burden that's light. Even though obedience to you is demanding, you demand that we obey you. You show grace and mercy and love for us in all of our obedience. We fail you so often, and yet you continue to pour out mercy upon us. Lord, we pray now as we go into the worship service, that you would fill our hearts with praise for you, and we would glorify you in our worship, and it would be pleasing to you. 
All these things we pray in Christ's name. Amen.